because Black Lives Matter, I mean, none, none of this was out in the open when I was growing up. This is just now. And I can't be out there now. So what happens with me is the pain that I feel, that's the patient endurance for me. And that becomes a prayer. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Sister Barbara Jean LaRochester is an 88-year-old Carmelite nun in Baltimore, where she's been a sister since 1972. Prior to her arrival, she spent 17 years in Philadelphia as an active nun in a Catholic hospital and teaching on the weekends. According to the New York Times, as a board member of the National Black Sisters Conference in 1968, she was active in the civil rights movement during the height of the race riots. She's been a spiritual director since 1982. In a Washington Post article, Sister Barbara Jean is quoted as saying, There comes a time when you have to get off the merry-go-round. I could only do so much with my two hands. Through prayer, I feel I can touch the world. So when we talked on the phone about a month ago, you had told me everything that happens in the world happens in here, when you were referencing the cloistered life. Can you tell me more about how cloistered life exposes all of what happens outside? Well, first of all, we're all human beings. That's the number one. That's the commonality. We're all human beings. And whatever happens outside of the monastery, people get angry, people get upset, people want to fight, people don't like what so-and-so said, my sister did this, and if I get them, I'm going to do the same thing. Happens the same thing in the monastery. We are 16 here. Two of our sisters, well, three were away, one passed in October from COVID but we are still 16 and we have two young women who are coming to live with us, you know, to see if this is what they really want, you know, in their twenties, they're going to have the same thing. I get angry sometimes, but it's a matter of not putting that anger out on another person. But the same thing that happens outside of the monastery happens within the monastery because we're all human beings and we're human beings in here and actions speak louder than words. And I love your writing. Your writing is just wonderful and, and so important. And in a piece that you wrote titled Black and Gifted, Our Ministry to Spiritual Direction, you write, if there is one gift which stands out more than any other in the journey of Black folks, it is the gift of patient endurance. So my question with, with that is, how have you seen that patient endurance exist for you in contemplative life? And how have you seen it in our world today? In religious life today, some communities still have, unfortunately, but today, some communities still do not have African-American sisters. And they, if they do, they, they accept them, you know, but they're still hedgy about that, you know. I think it's going to continue uh, because maybe it will, I should say, and maybe it won't. Uh, I know for myself, I'm the only one here, the African-American here, but I was brought up with a home, in a home where my mother had, had um, it was two colors. And she was like white when she died, brown and white, you know. Oh, I had the spots all over my legs. I said, thank God they're on my legs and not on my face, white, you know. Growing up with her, you know, being in a home orphanage, you know, she was a nurse anesthetist 
And I saw all these things, you know, you don't say much, but you can observe. You see what people see. People, why people look. We get on the bus before we had cars. And there were three of us. I was the oldest. And she made sure that we had seats together. She would stand up. And I'd watch, look around. And the people would be looking at her, looking at us, looking at her, looking at us. Talk about patient endurance. I think it's the actions that happen. And it still goes on today. It still goes on today. And it's even worse today, I think because Black Lives Matter, I mean, none, none of this was out in the open when I was growing up. This is just now. And I can't be out there now. So what happens with me is the pain that I feel, that's the patient endurance for me. And that becomes a prayer. God, I can't be out there to walk. I can't be there to express what I would like to say, even to help. But I ask you to use the pain that I'm feeling Patient endurance is individual, it's, it's, it's communal, and the people that are going through this, they're out there, but they're doing this every day, whatever happens to them. I'm the same way, but I'm inside, and I'm going through it with them. They're on the front lines, and I feel the pain. I said this as soon as it was over, the first day that this happened at the Capitol. If that had been African Americans, they would have been shot dead. They, they would nothing asked. They would have been gone. There weren't. I mean, there were individuals, yes. But as a group, there wasn't. And I think that's the biggest gift that was given to us because of the patient endurance that's there. That was there. You know, but that's, that's what it is for me. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the writings, you know, I've, I've read of Howard Thurman and the writings about him and his writings about his contemplative practice and how people have pointed to his contemplative practice kind of being this undergirding to the civil rights movement and this this kind of support that's not just solidarity but like you're saying it is it this is it it is i mean we're enduring what is what they're going through out there, but we're enduring it in here. And it's just as painful as could be. And the tears were just coming to my eyes. I mean, we were all sitting in a group. So I was by the window and, you know, and I had my water or whatever there. And I was just, and I just, could, I could not believe it. I said, and I said out loud, if this had been African-Americans, we'd have been shot dead, right? They wouldn't even eat if been asked. The tears were just, oh, it was unbelievable. And I still feel inside, you know, um, what people are going through. It's very hard, but uh, patient endurance goes on every minute of every day with someone that we don't even know. We don't even know. And it's even with children. It's even with children. Because my mom said, this is how we were brought up. We are to respect everybody. Everybody, regardless of how they act, you can always tell that to whoever is in charge. But you can't, and my two brothers that, you know, one brother was close to me. The other one was two years, two years younger than me. And um, I'm the only one left in my family now because he died in last January. But she would say, what you do makes a difference. How you do it makes a difference. And remember that. I may not be here with you all the time, but if something happens to you, you have to respect yourself. And no, you can't, you know, you can't mouth it or, you know, hit somebody or whatever, because everything makes a difference. You know, in talking about spiritual direction and talking about 
contemplative life and in you mentioning that you're the only African-American sister at your uh, monastery, just the importance of representation and the importance of, you know, I, I mean, I mentioned Howard Thurman, but very few people even know of Thurman's work as, as a Black mystic, as a Black contemplative. And I wonder, yeah, if you could just speak into the importance of, of that, of representation. I was on the docket here three times, Cassidy, for leadership in the community, and I didn't get it. And that, well, I mean, I didn't think I was going to get it anyway, but the last time there were two of us between myself and another person and the sister that died in October. And this was in, I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether it was the late 80s, beginning of the 90s, or I'm not sure. But anyway, we had the meeting and then the name surfaced and they were brought down to the two of us. And that evening, she came into my office, knocked on my door. She says, Barbara Jean, I'm taking my name off the list. I cannot do this. The bishop was supposed to come the next morning at 10. I cannot do this. And I said, are you sure? She said, I am sure. She went to bed. This was like nine o'clock. And I'm thinking, I said, fine. You know, I went to bed and I'm thinking, oh my God, what what does this mean? You know, that I'm going to be. So I went to bed, went to sleep, got up the next morning and, uh, I was in the office, uh, in my office here. The bishop was supposed to attend. So they usually come about 10 of 10, you know, whatever. And yes, she walks in again. She says, I know I told you last night that I was taking my name off the list. She said, but I was, I was told to leave my name on and whatever I needed, they would help me. I have never ever said that to anyone yet, but it's in my archives. It's written in my book. I was so shocked. She didn't say who, but I can surmise. So I mean, you know what? And sure enough, she got elected. After that, I took my name off of everything. Never again. For me, that was blatant, but that's what happens. It reminds me of the thing that we began this conversation with, that everything that happens in the world happens there. Exactly. Exactly. And if I were to say that now, I don't know that they would even own it. Mm. Mm. I don't know if they would or they wouldn't. Yeah. But it's it's finished and then, you know. But I as said at that point, this is going down in my I'm writing it down mm-hmm. exactly the way it happened. Mm. And God rest her soul, she's gone in October. She was she died in October. But they will have my archives. And your story is a testament to that patient endurance we were just talking about. Exactly. Exactly. You also write about I think this kind of goes along with this. You also write about questioning the importance of questioning our institutions for authentic living. And I think, you know, you kind of just describe that by telling that story. I guess my question is, as a contemplative, what does it look like to question institutions? Because a lot of people have the misunderstanding that being a contemplative is being passive. I don't think so. It's not being passive. No, that's right. No way. It's not being passive at all. What we do, how we act, that's very active. Even in here, you don't have to go around be doing whatever, you know, no, it could be just going to prayer where you're quiet, where you can sit, where you can bring someone else's problem to the Lord and talk, you know, whatever. So it's, it's not passive at all. I don't think so. Well, I think there's even, you know, the story you just told about writing down your story is an act of resistance. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Where you wouldn't think when you, you, you know, that's my way of saying who I am and being true to me. 
And that's truth-telling. I mean, you writing down your story is truth-telling. Whether anyone believes it or yeah. not. Have, I, and that's what my mom used to say, be true to who you are. And that has resonated. I see this, you know, I hear this all the time. It's hard because you don't know. Just to even see her, you know, she would always call, how are you doing? You need anything? You know, that kind of stuff, you know. Have you heard from your brothers and this and that, you know. She was good. Hmm. So I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about contemplation's role in mysticism and or what mysticism means to you. Uh, mysticism is a particular gift of God, really, that God gives to, to people. And the combination of mysticism with con- contemplative life, with contemplative prayer, is that people are sometimes going to prayer and they can come out with a prescription or a, a solution that they know is is from God and this is good and we should do it this way and whatever, that it'll take maybe two or three of us who rely on God and you know we just don't see or feel that or even have that to be able to jot it down. It comes more, uh, it's a little bit more work for us as opposed to a mystic that can see and really be in touch with on a deep level of prayer. And that's a grace that's given to few people. But that's how the two work together. Do you think it's possible to see or experience mysticism in everyday life, everyday people, so to speak? Yeah. Yeah. Who people are. Some people know they can pick them out. They, they, they get a feeling. You wonder, well, how did they know? Mm. And that's just a grace. A mystic is someone that observes mysteries or experiences, but their intuition is been, you know, it's held by God. And so they can, they're able to understand beyond the human understanding, beyond it. Uh, and with an intuition that it's beyond almost the possibility of trying to figure something out that you can't. And, it, and, and that, that's what it is, you know. Harriet Tubman, she was a mystic. She knew, I mean, with her going from the South to the North to the South, I mean, who would do that? with nothing that she had really, you know, she was, that's, she was the ideal woman. She was the mystic. Everything was down to earth for her, but she had that, I don't know what you call it, um, where God was, you know, she, she didn't do this only by herself. She relied on a higher power than herself. And it always worked for her. That again goes to the point we were discussing earlier about how a lot of people think things like contemplation is passive. Similarly, I think people think mysticism is this navel-gazing absence going inside oneself, when really, I mean, case in point, Harriet Tubman, right? Right, exactly. Who else did I put down? Uh, Thea Bowman. She and I, by Thea Bowman, I've known this since the 60s, when we started uh, the National Black Sisters Conference. The first day we went down, we had the first conference, and... Um, then we had a break, like in the afternoon, for maybe a half hour or so. And I said, I want to, we would, this was up at Mercy. I wanted to walk, you know, take a walk outside because it was nice. So I walked down this hill, uh, down, I mean, the open, wide, you know, green on either side, but uh, down the whole uh, road. And then I hear this singing. What the heck is that? I haven't heard, seen anybody. Who's that? And so I stopped where I heard it. And I'm looking around. And I didn't see anything. So I walked on the grass and I could hear the going. And then finally, I see someone sitting on the ground. It was 
Thea on the ground, sitting down under the tree, singing. That's how we met in 1964. And I sat down there with her, who, I'm Sister Thea, who are you? I said, Sister Barbara. <laughs> and we became friends like, I don't know what, mm. after that. What a perfect way to meet. Yes. Yes, but she was, talk about mystic, she and her work, her preaching, it was unbelievable. And the song she came out, she was another one, African-American, the only one in her community. And so much, so many people don't even know some of the stories. She said when, when they would leave the convent to go, the sisters to work, you know, whatever, there may be four or five, four in the car, I guess. But she was always in the back because she didn't drive, you know. She says, but if they stopped at a red light and there were people waiting for the bus there, she'd always have to bend down in the car so that they wouldn't see her. Mm. That they would only see the white sisters there. So we all have, every one of us has something about, she loved her community. I love my community too, but we're not perfect. But we still live and I believe Everybody is God-oriented. I don't want to be a mystic. I don't see, I don't get answers like they do, you know. I just live my life day to day and give it the best I can. That's all God wants. Mm. Another thing you wrote in Black and Gifted, you talked about liberation as a willingness to walk through the deserts of one's own internal fears to liberate and free the spirit for holistic, integrated living. And I'm particularly struck by the willingness to walk through the deserts, yeah, for for liberation, to move towards liberation. Again, that patient endurance that those desert experiences require. Right. It's a willingness to walk in through the desert of our fear, internal fear, willingness to walk through our fear to be free and to free the spirit for holistic into, you know, integration, integrated living in direction sometime when they ask what to do. I don't know. I don't have an answer, really, you know, lay it with, you know, at the feet of God. And, you know, the term metanoia, anybody that's Catholic has grown up with a totally different idea of metanoia than it's looked at today. I think it's, it, that's what it's calling us to. There is life, even in the midst of what we perceive or what we see as um, non-life. Amid that patient endurance, what are the glimpses of liberation or the glimpses of holistic, integrated living? What gives you hope? The fact that even within the race that I'm in, we can treat our brother and sister as human beings. And this purports and helps us to see others as human beings also. The fact that we can accept to a point what we have and what we've been given and work diligently at that to make ourselves better and to lift someone who is younger than we to be in a place where they can spread the, their wings and, and, and do something better and more than we did. This is what I see. And this is what I hope for. All the children that I have taught, it's amazing that they still remember me. My name was Robert then. A couple of them have come from my jubilees and I can't believe they tell stories about what I used to do, what I would tell them, and all that kind of stuff. And they can't, but they're nurses. Some of them have gone up, uh, you know, in, in, in their own companies, you know, people that you didn't even think of 
what they would do because they were so small, but it's passing it on to another generation or even generations below that. I really believe, I am a firm, firm believer that what we do, what we say, how we act has an effect on people, whether you know them or not. And when you are the only one in all whiteness, everybody looks at you, you know, never mind them not saying anything, you know what's going on in their mind. You know, what is she doing here? I wonder what she's up to. Some of them may come and talk even, you know, but this is what I believe that um, actions speak louder than words. And that's what people see. One of the things we kind of addressed earlier, but I wonder if you might have anything else to say to the question of, do you think there's anything contemplation can teach protests and movements? Do you think there's anything that contemplative life can learn from protest and movements? There's always change going on in the world. and We don't even know about it. As a human being who is part of this world, the same thing happens to us individually. I'm a contemplative, yes, but there are other movements of religion in the world besides myself. They don't pray the way I do, but they do pray, you know? I don't pray the way they do, but they don't pray the way I do. But they still pray to a person that they, you know, a God that they believe in. And I believe that God made all of us and God has given each of us gifts and graces to use. So I think people can become mystics, which means they go deeper into God, however it fits them, however they feel called or drawn. They can touch the God that they believe in, and God can touch their hearts. And this is prayer, and it doesn't have a name. It's God. They're in touch with their God, and I'm in touch with my God. But it's God. This is really something because, you know, we don't talk about this all the time. I went last night, I was up to 10.30 going through that. I said, oh my God, I hope I, I hope I remember what to say. <laughs> I, didn't <know> what, <laughs> I didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, but you know, sometimes even like we'll have a dialogue homily at um, our communion service and we have a communion service every day. So you read the scripture for the day and uh, something might pop into my head as I'm reading and you know, what are the reflections and all of that. And I says, but when it gets down there, I know what what I want is, but the words don't come out anymore like they used to. Do you find that aging makes us even more contemplative? Well, if we look at it like that, yes. You say, because there is a lot of loss in aging. But the other side of that is aging is a gift. Everybody doesn't get to the age, you know. That's what I've come to myself. And you'd mentioned that you're, are you writing kind of like a, like a memoir type thing about your life or? I do a lot of, I do poetry off and on, you know, and uh, things that I do. Yeah. It's, I wouldn't say every single day I write, write, but things that are important. Yes, I do. Okay. So I'm making sure that one person that if anything ever happens to me, they know that they have, I have archives. Yes. It's important. Well, Sister Barbara Jean, it has been amazing to speak with you, um, listen to your stories and your patient endurance, and listen to just everything that you've been through, everything that you do and continue to do. It's just amazing. 
Well, God bless you and your work that you're doing. This is something really, I, I have kudos, really. I hope your life goes uh, the way you want it. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. This podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources and tools, go to enfleshed.com.